Hello everybody, welcome to Borderline and Back, Hope, Management, and Resiliency for Borderline Personality Disorder. I'm your host Maggie, and before we get into this episode today, I just want to give a disclaimer. This is my first time doing this. Uh, in today's episode, I'm going to talk about suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation, and eating disorders and self-harm. So if any of that is a trigger for you, or if you are currently experiencing any of these thoughts, please do not listen to this episode. Please seek help. Uh, Please contact your local emergency services or your local suicide hotline. I am leaving links down below to international suicide hotlines or emergency uh, numbers, depending on where you are located throughout the world. Um, Again, this is a content warning here. If any of this might cause you emotional or physical harm, please do not listen to this episode. Please find a safe space, someone safe to talk to, and get yourself both physically, emotionally, and mentally safe. This is just your reminder. I'm not a doctor, counselor, psychologist, psychiatrist, social worker, anything along those lines. I'm not even technically a life coach. I am here sharing my journey of living with borderline personality disorder, my diagnosis, my my journey, as well as my experiences of having ADHD, hoping that my story, my experiences, my ups, my downs, my life will be able to resonate with at least one person. Let somebody out there know that they're not alone. Alternatively, to try and shed some light for those of you whose loved one friend, family member, partner may have just been diagnosed with uh, BPD, borderline personality disorder, sometimes called EUPD, so emotional unstable personality disorder, kind of goes interchangeably, to try and share our experiences with you. Your loved one might not be able to tell you exactly what it feels like day to day um, in their world, and truthfully, I won't be able to explain that quite well either. The struggle that comes with having BPD is that it presents so differently case by case that even though we all have the same diagnosis and we do have some shared experiences, our personal journeys are so deeply personal. Um, When it comes to our struggles, our demons, if you will, how we try and cope our experiences. But the purpose of this podcast, again, is to just hopefully let some people know that they're not alone so that they feel that they're heard, so that they feel as if they're not alone, and to just try and shed some stigma that comes along with this diagnosis, any kind of um, cluster B personality disorder um, tends to be highly stigmatized, mislabeled, and that's not really fair to any of us who fall into that category. I'm not going to lie, this is actually a very hard topic. for me to talk about. I had for a long time said that I was never going to uh, touch on uh, suicidal thoughts, suicidal ideation, anything along those lines. Um, I had thought that that was going to be a boundary for me. Um, But as I walk this journey, that's changed a little bit. Um, I'm going to apologize for saying, um, I realize that I say that all the time. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, sorry guys. However, back to this whole um, topic. Dang it, um, Maggie. This topic for this podcast, I had somebody reach out to me via Instagram. 
and they had talked about how the podcast has been helpful for them and they had actually made a request that if it was not too much of a trigger for me if I could do a podcast on how to deal with suicidal ideation and this is interesting for me because that's actually a topic that I had never thought about of how I deal with um, suicidal ideation because for a long time uh, up until my diagnosis if you had asked me if I had ever had suicidal ideation I would have said no not because I didn't but because I was either in denial or because I didn't fully understand what it meant when somebody asked me if I had suicidal ideation and that I think comes down to both my willingful ignorance as well as me thinking that I am an incredibly intelligent person above average intelligence and thinking that I knew what suicidal ideation meant turns out I didn't so the definition let's look at what suicidal ideation is so suicidal ideation is when you think about killing yourself and these thoughts might or might not include a plan to die if you had asked me pre-seeing my psychiatrist if I had had suicidal ideation I would have said no because in my mind suicidal ideation would have meant that I had a plan to follow through on uh, when it came to suicidal thoughts however once it was presented to me what suicidal ideation actually meant I can retrospectively look back and say I have had suicidal ideation since I was about 10 10 years old is the first time I remember having thoughts of um, not necessarily just suicidal ideation, but thoughts of death and how people's lives would be easier without me in it. Again, I preface this with a, a disclaimer at the beginning of this episode, so please bear with me. And I hope this doesn't impact anyone in a negative way. This is very vulnerable for me to talk about, so thank you. For your patience and your understanding here. Um, suicidal ideation. Most of my life I've had those kind of thoughts. Thoughts that I am a burden to people around me and that if I wasn't around everyone who is in my life, their own lives would be better without me. That I'd be less of a burden. I wouldn't cause pain or frustration to them because of things that I did or ways that I didn't understand them. Just small slights that I may have caused them. For me, suicidal ideation could be I am driving on a roundabout and how convenient it would be if my foot pressed the gas and I just launched into traffic. Um, suicidal ideation for me could be you know post-surgery and having a mix-up on my medication and overdosing um suicidal ideation for me was very situational how i could take i hate saying this advantage of a situation of something that's going on in my life and making it almost appear like it's an accident and that i would no longer be around I would no longer be alive let's just put it that way and that especially when i became an adult because of things like life insurance policies and benefits that 
my death would actually be a financial gain to some people in my life. When I was married, it would mean that my house would have been paid off for my former partner. It would mean that my nieces and my godsons would have money to go to school because they are in my wills. They get um, a chunk of my life insurance policies. When I was feeling particularly down or particularly low or particularly useless, if I felt like I wasn't connecting with people around me, no matter how much I desperately wanted to, those thoughts would creep into my head. Those thoughts would creep into my head often. Like I said, sitting at a red light, sitting at a roundabout, things like that. How, how easy it would be. How convenient it would be if I were, like I said, to just put my foot on the gas. It would be quiet. <laughs> um, my, my thoughts, like I said, was that it would be quiet. It would be still. And in my head, people's lives would be much easier without me in their life. The, um, I guess, kind of counterpart to those thoughts, and I've mentioned this before in an episode, is how important my nieces are to me. My nieces mean more to me than most adult relationships that I have. I love them. I absolutely love them, and I frequently count my blessings that I get to be an aunt, both to my nieces and to my godsons. And how do I put this? I think part of the reason that I am so proud to be an aunt is because growing up, I had an uncle, a great uncle, who I looked up to so, so, so deeply, so greatly. Um, I'm going to call him on here what I always did. He was my Uncle D. He was my favorite person, Um, my favorite uncle, the person in my life who I felt recognized me for who I was, not who I felt like I needed to be, who fostered all of my interests, my interest in being an academic, my interest in Star Wars and nerdy things. He took me to see The Phantom Menace when it first came out, and that will forever remain probably my favorite Star Wars movie, just because I got to go to that with him. He was the happiest person I had ever met in my entire life. He was that uncle who just did those ridiculous things with you. Every Sunday, he would walk down from his cottage to our cottage with his newspaper under his arm, and he would bring all of this candy so that we could have a Sunday ice cream Sunday bar. It was it was incredible. He was that person that would grab the can of whipped cream and you would have an ice cream Sunday in your mouth. Like just the best person I knew. He he took me to Disney when I was a kid. Like he he was that uncle. And like I said, the happiest person in the world. And Uncle D taught me a few lessons in my life. Number one was that do what makes you happy and just be authentically yourself and I wish I could have carried that on for a lot more of my life than I had I have just started doing that again but sadly the other lesson that I learned from my uncle D is very similar to lessons that I learned from people like Kurt Cobain or like Robin Williams and that is that the happiest people in your life, the people that bring the most joy to those around them are often the people that suffer the deepest, the people that you miss 
seeing that pain in. And when I was 11, we were up at our family's cottage, cottages. We are very lucky to have more than one. And growing up at the time I was 11, my nana and my aunt had cottages that were just down the road from one another. My uncle and my sister and my nana and my aunt and everyone, we were supposed to go have a night out. We were supposed to go and have dinner out at a Chinese food buffet. And then we were supposed to go see a movie. I think it was called Chicken Run. It was kind of one of those claymation movies. And Uncle Lee never made it to the restaurant. We all thought that was kind of weird. He was supposed to meet us there. We thought maybe something happened. It is what it is. We went to the movie. We watched that. And when we got home, uh, this was would have been around 2001. So almost 20 years ago now. Um, it was a really big privilege for us to be able to check the voicemail on the corded phone that we had in the kitchen of the cottage. And when I went to check those messages because there was one it was uncle d uh uncle d didn't leave a letter uncle d left a voicemail uh telling me how much he loved me uh how much he loved all of us how special we all were to him but that he couldn't do it anymore he couldn't carry the weight and i didn't understand what that meant at that time when it was playing immediately think it was my step-grandpa came and put the phone down and and hung up uh, I can't register what he was saying um, that night my uncle as I said the happiest person that I had known in my life the person that brought me so much joy probably one of the most emotionally intelligent people I could have ever met um, he he committed suicide yeah I woke up the next morning seeing the pain on every single adult's face in my family cottage, the place that was probably the happiest place in the world for me. It, it still has so many happy memories, don't get me wrong. But I remember opening my bedroom door and seeing my aunt, my aunt Kay, sitting on the couch across from the bedroom. And she looked white as a ghost. She had just lost her best friend. She had just lost her partner. And I, I couldn't comprehend what was going on. I was 11. I didn't exactly know what all that meant. All I knew is that there was something heavy and that I couldn't quite understand what was going on, but that there was an intense amount of pain. No one really told me at first what had gone on. I was told that my uncle had a sick heart. And I remember when I was old enough to finally find out that my uncle had in fact committed suicide, I was angry. I was so angry at everyone for lying to me. That's one of the first instances that I remember really, really, really distrusting people. I was about 13 when the truth came out. But as I've gotten older and I reflect on what I was told about him having a sick heart, that, that's probably one of the most beautiful ways I can think of for describing what it's like to be in a depressive state, to live with depression, where you're, you're fighting for your happiness, but a darkness kind of takes over in ways that you can never, ever really understand or comprehend unless you're in that place. And the reason that I'm telling this story is because from that time that I was 13, whenever I would have these thoughts that would pop into my head, again, I didn't register that they were um, thoughts of suicidal ideation. Um, I would always say that because of what I had experienced as a child in my preteens, my early teens, that I could never 
follow through with um, suicidal thoughts. I can never have a plan because I had experienced firsthand what that kind of loss felt like, what it was like to lose someone that important to you, what it, what it felt like to, and, and I hate saying this because again, D was not that person. I don't think he ever intended for us to feel that way, but to feel like the people around you were not enough that your loved ones, your friends, your family, your your nieces, your nephews, your cousins, your spouse were not enough to give you feelings of fulfillment, to encourage you to fight for your life. So my whole life, even when I had these thoughts pop into my head, how easy it would be, like I said, put my foot on the gas, take some extra pills, anything like that, um... I'd be like, no, no, I, I can, I can power through this. I can get through this. This isn't me, if you will. I was able to shake myself out of it. Um, that being said, I've mentioned that my subtype is quiet borderline. I am my own worst enemy. I don't often lash out at people. I get angry and upset with myself. I think that would have come across earlier when I was talking about my how my suicidal ideation presents itself. I've never been one to threaten suicide in order to get my way uh, when it comes to people's actions or interactions. I've always thought those things in my head, and it's always been because of the ways that I've hurt people, and like I said, how it would be easier if I was not in people's lives. Um... And truthfully, I had never had anything more than those thoughts, those fleeting thoughts in the past until what would have been around my ex-husband's and I's anniversary. And he had messaged me about something personal that had gone on in his life, deeply personal, to the point that I'll never share it uh, here. And we had a couple shared friends and sisters and stuff like that. And a comment had been made and he messaged me asking why someone would have made a certain comment and asking if I had told anyone something. And I couldn't remember. (laughs) I couldn't remember if I had slipped and disclosed a secret of his. And I panicked. I panicked so badly. My stomach immediately dropped. And this was at the point in time where I was taking full responsibility of everything that had ever happened in our marriage, our failed relationship, every way that he had ever expressed that he was unhappy with his life, with his mental health. I had put that all on me. And in that moment, I felt like this was just the last way I could have betrayed him, the last way I had fucked up his life, if you will. And in that moment, I... I, I didn't want to be alive anymore. I felt that I had caused so much irreparable damage to his life. And again, he, he was my favorite person. He was the person I would have done anything for. <laughs> he was the person that in the throes of my disorder meant more to me than my own life did. And when that happened, when I thought that I had, like I said, fucked up beyond all repair, I no longer wanted to be alive. I thoroughly felt as if his life and 
my my everyone's life would be so much easier if I was not around and I had been in the kitchen and I had been trying to cook and I grabbed a knife and I put it to my wrist and this is very um hard for me to say and normally I I wouldn't touch on this subject but I had the knife to my wrist and I was crying I was in hysterics and I don't know how I did it but I asked Siri to call my mom and my mom came and she got me and people came and they looked after my dogs and I asked my mom for help and I told her I needed to go to the hospital because I was scaring myself and in that moment that was the first time that I had ever told anyone else about the thoughts that sometimes go through my head about how often I had thought about how it would be so much easier for everyone around me if I wasn't there so that I'd no longer be a burden to them because that is what I felt like the majority of my life from the time I was 10 or 11 until the time I was 30 and that's an incredibly long time to be feeling that way and not know what is going on to not know why so I called my mom uh she came and she got me and she held my hand the whole way to the hospital and she put my Grammy on the phone and my Grammy my Grammy talked to me too and I just kept apologizing and apologizing and apologizing for being dramatic and I think those were the exact words that I said that I'm sorry for being dramatic and they just told me that it's not dramatic to reach out when you're struggling and that they would rather me do that over and over again than to feel like I'm alone and truly alone and to act on the thoughts that I had. And I don't know if this makes any sense to anyone listening, um, but after hiding those thoughts for so long, it felt as if a weight had been lifted I I was being vulnerable in a way that I didn't think I ever could in a way that I thought people would have always just told me to you know buck up you're fine you're being dramatic all of those things and in that moment when I was having those thoughts of ideation that I couldn't overcome was when I built a new layer of trust and vulnerability with my mom that I had never had before. That I had always had these thoughts of being a burden, of causing people pain and all these other things. But the minute that I told someone about it for the first time was the minute that what would have normally been my like wor- my worst my worst fear because that's the ultimate way of feeling like a burden having people show up for me and be there and say I'm here for you I love you and we're gonna we're gonna get you the help that you need and yeah I got formed which here in Canada means I was there on a psychiatric hold I wasn't allowed to leave but because of that I finally got to talk (laughs) to a doctor and get put on a round of meds that I needed. It was through that terrifying experience of being 
formed and just being in such a dissociative state that I was finally able to sit down and talk to someone and tell them what I was experiencing and that I'm not trying to self-diagnose or anything like that, but I want to be put on mood stabilizers because I cannot be going through these throes of emotions day to day, hour to hour, when something causes me to be in such distress that my my thought is to end my own life. If I am sound a little different now than in that previous clip, it's because I needed a bit of a break. To be honest, I needed to step away, um, recompose myself so I could keep recording this episode. So thank you for bearing with me. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of my background with my history of suicidal ideation and the one time that I uh, ended up in the hospital. Also some his- historical context some of my childhood trauma that still sits with me. Um, listening back to that clip now, I, um, I think back to right before I called my mom, that whole knife incident. And in 2018, I actually got a, a tattoo on my right um, arm, just below my elbow. And ever since my uncle's suicide, uh, Hamlet has always been a really important play to me, uh, particularly if any of you have seen the movie What Dreams May Come with Robin Williams. It is truly, truly, truly beautiful. It is uh, Dante's divine comedy. It has Robin Williams in it and is visually appealing. Um, ever since studying Hamlet in high school and watching that movie, um, Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1, Lines 67 through 70, have always been extremely impactful lines to me, particularly when it comes to thinking about my uncle. Um, I have that tattoo, like I said, on my arm. And what those lines read are, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity so long of life. And kind of, if you put that into modern terms, is that but there's the catch in death sleep who knows what kind of dreams might come after we've put the noise and commotion of life behind us that's certainly something to worry about that's the consideration that makes us stretch out our sufferings for so long and that stuck with me all of my life i think about it day to day every time i look down on my arm and originally i got those words because of my uncle about thinking originally that I, I'm not going to get into it when it comes to suicide, suicide pardon me, it's, it's a very personal thing. But, yeah, when I struggled, I got a tattoo. <laughs> uh, when I struggled throughout my life, I've gotten tattoos fairly often, small ones in different places. In my teens, I got a lot of body piercings. Um, if you are listening, you might relate to this. It is a controlled form of pain that uh, people like myself can do. Uh, when I would be feeling overwhelmed, when I would be in those deeply emotional states, when I would be in the throes of having those suicidal uh, thoughts, those suicidal ideations, instead of acting on them in my youth when I didn't know what was going on, I would get a piercing. I would go in, I would get a tattoo. It was a form of control for me. These are not healthy adaptations for dealing with that emotional pain. I'm just sharing 
my story here before I get into what I do now. Um, similarly, um, along the lines of how I have struggled with suicidal ideation uh, without realizing that that's what I dealt with for a very long time, was that prior to seeing a psychiatrist for the first time and answering those forms um, and learning what self-harm can actually be defined as, uh, in my mind, self-harm meant that I would have just cut my wrists again. There's a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode. It wasn't until I filled out the forms when I had my referral to see my psychiatrist what all self-harm could actually mean uh, to realize that I have been self-harming for a very long time uh, as a means of control and trying to find an outlet for the lack of better words, like pent up turmoil and emotions that I felt on the inside that I didn't know how to properly explain to people. I didn't know how to properly cope with it. Um, I have never uh, been a person to cut uh, my wrists, anything along those lines. I, you never would have been able to see looking at me the ways that I um, participated in self-harm. Uh, my self-harm was always to my feet, which might sound odd, but it was a way to control. It was a way that no one would see it. Um, it did cause issues with walking and stuff like that. Uh, but it was an extra layer of control because, like I said, I wore shoes, nobody saw it. Um, but I participated in my method of self-harm, again, from the time I was about 11 right up until I was about 30. I've only recently gotten that under control. I'm proud of myself for getting it under control now that I realize what it is. I've had to go about changing a lot of things in my life uh, just to make sure that I don't have access uh, to tools, if you will. That I had historically used for participating in those type of activities and again that was a way of me trying to have a release of this emotional pain that I was feeling a way to have some element of control when I felt like I was not in control of my life my mind or my emotions um, and that's kind of the interesting thing about self-harm is that when most people talk about self-harm it's about cutting um, inflicting physical or visible pain um for me uh i would now say that my biggest way of inflicting self-harm upon myself uh was through food i have had a full-blown eating disorder again from the time i was 11 uh arguably you could say i still have it right now that's something that I still need to get in check, but I'm very good at reaching out to people when I'm struggling and asking to have an accountability partner. Um, oh, this is so hard to talk about, guys. It's, it, I still carry a lot of shame for this. Again, I never want to misrepresent myself on this podcast and make it seem like I have it all together. I don't. And that's why I say that um, I'm managing. I'm not recovering, if that makes any sense. Um, but throughout my life, I have gone through severe cycles of, um, binge and restrict, uh, either binging to feel something or restricting as a form of punishment. And that's caused a lot of physical damage to my body. It's been incredibly hard. Uh, there's been times where I don't even know how I'm functioning with how few calories that I'm eating. Again, I'm just trying to be transparent here. This is why I have the disclosure at the beginning of the episode. 
but oftentimes, at least from my experience, when we hear the word self-harm, we think about cutting, and that is not at all um, the limitations when it comes to self-harmful activities. So I just did a, a quick Google of what uh, self-harm actually meant, and Wikipedia, which I know is not the most reputable source on the planet when it comes to information, but it's quick guys, let's just roll with it here. Uh, so self-harm or self-injury is intentional behavior that is considered harmful to oneself. Um, and that is why I consider eating disorders a form of self-harm. Um, and I'm kind of lumping this all together in the same category as suicidal ideation, because for me, that was, this is all in the past been ways of trying to exhibit some kind of control over my life. Um, ways to punish myself when I felt like I deserved to be punished for behaviors that I may have exhibited uh, specifically because I felt like I was harming people around me and that I was not worthy of either being alive or that I needed to punish myself for something that I may have done, like my perception of what I may have done. And when I was in the throes of undiagnosed BPD, not knowing what was going on, completely being at the mercy of these emotions, I would participate in these activities, these thoughts, without even second-guessing what was going on. I would hide them. Don't get me wrong. I lived with my ex-husband for about nine years, and he had absolutely no idea that I was participating in self-harm activities, like physical harm. He had no idea about my my issues with food well that's a lie he did he just thought that i was doing it for the sake of doing it and he would actually get very down on me about um things like he would find chocolate bar wrappers and stuff in the car and tell me how like he thought it was disgusting and unattractive and he didn't know what was going on but language like that didn't help at all um same with the suicidal ideation people had no idea my ex-husband had no idea. My parents had no idea when I was living with them. My roommates that I lived with for five years had no idea. When you're participating in these activities, you get very good at hiding them. And that's not healthy. Um, so so kind of back to the original uh, question that I received on Instagram is, how do I manage or what is my experience with suicidal ideation or self-harm? And again, I'm, I'm very on a high level talking about eating disorders here. I'll do another episode on that. Um, I think the first step in moving past these thoughts of coping or moving past these measures of control, at least from my experience, is number one, admitting it. Admitting to yourself that this is going on. Admitting what these thoughts actually are. Admitting what these patterns of behavior actually are write them down if you're at a point you can't talk to somebody else about it write it down admit to it if you have a gp a general practitioner that's what we would call it here in canada or if you have a psychiatrist i i think i said in one of my early episodes like the importance of honesty and diagnosis it's hard i will say it is probably one of the hardest things you are going to do uh in your life but be honest with someone who can offer you the help that you need be honest about what is actually going on. If I had not been honest after those surveys, I wouldn't have gotten the diagnosis that I have and I would not be where I am in my life right now if I hadn't done that. The vulnerability of it is terrifying. 
like even with a GP, we, we have this innate desire to please people uh, as individuals that have BPD. But be honest with someone. And if that first disclosure is to your GP, please have that be your first disclosure because there is an element of uh, doctor-patient confidentiality if you're not ready to talk to a friend or a family member about things. If you are, please disclose to someone that you trust, someone who can safely hold space for you and be there for you to support you through moments where you are having a hard time. Uh, for me, I, I mentioned I still struggle with food sometimes and I reach out to friends and I say, I need a calorie accountability partner <laughs> and I will message you um, what I've eaten. I'll send pictures. I need someone to do that with so that someone else is checking on me. Um, so that's my, that's my first, uh, I don't like saying advice. That was my first step was being honest with someone. And from that, realizing that my actions would have a very deep impact on the people around me. That even though I think that their lives may have been better, or I, I had thought that their lives might have been better without me, that that is completely and utterly wrong. When we are in emotion mind, that is our first thought, is how much easier people's lives would be without us, that they would be less complicated. Uh, less of a burden that people are more frustrated with us than they are that they care about us and that that cannot be farther from the truth and I know I'm saying this from a, a place that I've been walking management of my disorder for a really a long time at this point I'm coping very well and again I am extremely blessed I have access to a one-on-one -on -one as psychologist I have access to a psychiatrist I have access to group dbt therapy I am blessed enough to have a job that provides me with benefits that I get my medication. I know how privileged I am and that not everyone has um, the same advantages here that I do. Um, but it is that whole process of being honest and getting to that point and disclosing to someone just that first time that you realize how... How much our brains actually trick us into believing things that are fundamentally untrue. So I guess what I want to say here when it comes to how I deal with suicidal ideation, uh, self-harm, any kind of harmful behavior to myself now, uh, where I'm at, at my journey in management, is that when those thoughts pop into my head, I pause or I do my best to pause where I am and to kind of remove myself from a situation. Uh, it doesn't have to be physically, but mentally remove myself and try and consider what is going on that is causing those thoughts to happen. What what has triggered me, if you will? What are the, the physical circumstances? What has been going on uh, mentally or emotionally in that particular moment around me? I then do that activity that I've talked about with his, pardon me, that my therapist calls uh, checking the facts and examining what is going on versus what I'm feeling. And then I remind myself of every single thing that I have to be grateful for and why those thoughts, those uh, suicidal ideations, that need for self-harm, anything along those lines, why that does not um, benefit 
me why that does not fit into this life that I'm cultivating for myself uh why every single person in my life everything that I'm grateful for everything that I'm proud of everything that makes me happy is worth working through a moment of frustration a moment of despair a moment of feeling down I have pictures of my nieces uh, saved to my favorites on my phone videos of them laughing I have this live picture from this summer that is me my sister my mom and my nieces just at this campsite and we are all just laughing like we are sitting on each other's laps and we're laughing and the picture moves and it reminds me of Harry Potter and it makes me so happy and so grateful but thinking that if I didn't or pardon me if I had ever acted on any suicidal ideation that I ever had I wouldn't have those moments and it is those simple moments of joy that make any moment of frustration or sadness so incredibly worth persevering through that when I'm having these moments of potential suicidal ideation wanting to self-harm to think about all these incredible things that I have to look forward to I have my niece's proms to look forward to giving them a hard time about going out with their boyfriends and just giving them like making fun of them I have their weddings and my godson's weddings to look forward to I have my whole life I'm 31 I have another 50 years of my life to look forward to of having incredible relationships of of traveling of bettering myself and hopefully being able to stick to this plan that I have of doing a career change of working this administration job that I have right now but eventually getting my master's in counseling psychology so I can take my lived knowledge that I have of living with a personality disorder of having ADHD and bringing that into the counseling world and having a very unique perspective that I can take to people who have potentially felt stigmatized and ostracized within the counseling environment to begin with. When I'm having thoughts that are on the line of being suicidal ideation or again, self-harm, honestly, I put myself to bed I, I, I give myself a time out. It is time for Maggie to go have a nap. I will put a weighted blanket over me. I will get comfy at my jammies. I will take my dog to bed and I will put on my favorite movie, whether that be my favorite movie of all time, my favorite movie of the moment, a favorite audiobook, and I just get myself comfortable. I tell someone that I'm having a hard day just so that they know and I ask them to check in on me. And that was hard at first I have to remind myself that I'm not being a burden at that point that I'm asking to be treated the way I would treat other people and that's something that we as people I think with borderline personality disorder struggle with is that we give so much to other people that we fail to give it to ourselves or to be able to accept it for ourselves when we need it and that has been such a game changer for me is treating myself the way I would treat somebody else who is struggling and I highly encourage you all to do that for yourself. Start asking for people to check in on you. Start disclosing when you are struggling. Start building those connections so that you are not carrying the weight of 
other people's lives and their emotions and their struggles on top of what you are silently struggling with yourself, especially if, like me, you are a quiet subtype. We hide and we hide and we hide and we shoulder and we shoulder and we shoulder everyone else's problems plus our own until we reach the point that we are about ready to collapse. And that is deeply, deeply, deeply unhealthy. Uh, with that, I'm actually going to sign off for tonight. Again, I'm leaving resources in the show notes um, to connect you to international uh, emergency or suicidal uh, helplines, hotlines. If you are struggling with those kind of thoughts yourself, if you are, this is just your reminder, I am not a doctor, psychologist, psychiatrist, anything along those lines. If you are struggling, please contact your local emergency services and get the help that you need to keep yourself safe. Above all, keeping yourself emotionally and physically safe is the number one priority that you should have for yourself, and it's the number one priority that I have for you as well. I know this time of year, it's uh, December, it's really hard for everyone. Big emotions can pop up, so please make sure that you are doing what you need to do to take care of yourself physically, mentally, and emotionally. Do not feel that you need to overexert yourself in order to fit anyone else's expectations. You are the best judge of what you need in your life at any given time. And until I get around to recording, or pardon me, recording uh, the DBT mini so that I'm a little uh, truant on, this is a heavy topic. It was heavy for me. Like I said, I had to take some pauses. There's no shame in asking for help, in asking to be heard or in being vulnerable about the things that you struggle with we all struggle with things it's about how we choose to carry those struggles how we choose to be vulnerable and develop and trust in someone else when history and our experiences would tell us to do the opposite we all think that we're doing terribly in life when we compare ourselves to everything that we see online instagram facebook social media tiktok and i want you to remember that every day doesn't have to be perfect but there's some really beautiful parts in every day and that even if you're struggling you're probably doing better than you ultimately think that you are we're all we are our own worst critics and until the next episode Remember to give yourself a little grace. I'll talk to you guys and catch up with you later. Bye.